Uh, the issue is the aguna. So the word aguna is an important word. An aguna means a stranded woman, a woman that's not able to marry because she has not gotten a get. Get is the name for the piece of parchment, not paper, a piece of parchment that a woman receives when she gets divorced from her husband, right? So if the man refuses to give her a get, even if she has a civil divorce, halacha, she's not allowed to marry. And if she marries, she's guilty of adultery, the Ten Commandments. And God forbid, a child that she would have would be a mamzer who would not be allowed to marry most uh, Jewish people. And uh, this is his stranglehold over her uh, that he withholds a get. He doesn't want to give a get. Now, why doesn't he want to give a get? Different reasons. Uh, most of the time, it's because he wants to blackmail her for something. So he'll either say, I'll give you a get if you give me money. I'll give you a get if you give me visit, uh, custody of the children. I'll give you a get, uh, you know, if you give me all the property of the marriage. Right, so it's a blackmail thing, meaning I'll give you a get if you give me something. Other times, it literally is suicidal. He just wants to inflict pain. Even if you give him a million dollars, he says he's going to hurt her because he feels hurt or whatever it is. But be it as it may, this is called the Aguna problem. Uh, again, I, I just want to repeat that sometimes it's reported in newspapers, Jewish papers, that there are thousands of women that are aragunos. Uh, absolutely not true. Baruch Hashem, I mean, it's not good that they're getting divorced, but Baruch Hashem, in the vast majority of cases where the parties uh, want to get divorced, a husband will give a get. And not every woman is an aguna. At any one time, they estimate, this is just an estimate and it would change, obviously, that there's between like 30 to 50 women that are Argunos any given time. Now, numerically, that's small, you know, Hashem. But, but, you know, if you're one of those 50, uh, life can be very, very miserable uh, for you. And therefore, we should try to do whatever we can to, to help women that are in that very unfortunate situation. Now, so let's just uh, go over something. We went over, we started it last week, and today we'll hopefully finish. Uh, first thing that we might look at is, is the marriage halakhically valid? I know we went over this, but just I'm going to give you a checklist. Because if the marriage is not halakhically valid, you don't need a get. So the woman is free to marry without a get. Uh, so we, we want to know, is the marriage halakhically valid? So one thing we'll look at is, who were the witnesses under the chuppah? A Jewish marriage has to have witnesses. And witnesses have to be what are called kosher witnesses. And what makes a witness kosher is, number one, they have to be Jewish. That's a basic. And number two, with apologies, they have to be men. Number three, they cannot be related to each other like cousins. Or, or they cannot be related to the bride or the groom. And number four, they have to be orthodox, meaning they have to be Shomer Shabbos and Tashras and the like. Now, if a wedding took place without two kosher witnesses, now the rabbi can be one of the witnesses if he happens to be a kosher rabbi. Not every rabbi is going to be kosher either. So uh, if you didn't have two kosher witnesses, then it is not a halachic marriage. If it's not a halachic marriage, you don't need a get. And that makes life a lot easier. Uh, now, because of this, most conservative or reform marriages, but again, this is important to pay attention to this, are not halachically valid. Now, not because, remember, not because 
it wasn't a conservative temple or a reform synagogue. And not even because the guy that married them, or the woman that married them, was a reform rabbi. That's not why it's no good. It's no good because you didn't, you probably did not have the right witnesses. Theoretically, if a reform rabbi conducts a ceremony and he happens to have two Shomer Shabbos witnesses that are kosher, it would be a marriage. This is a, a, a critical point. It's not the identity of the rabbi that affects the validity of the marriage, uh, and certainly not the place where the marriage took place. It is the witnesses that affect the marriage. Now, that also means civil marriages are not halakhati valid because there was no ceremony, there was no religious ceremony. You didn't have witnesses, you didn't have culture witnesses. And, uh, yeah, and, and of course, living together is not going to make a marriage, meaning just because people live together, that doesn't make them married. So that's the very first thing we have to look at. When a woman has a problem that she can't get a get, the first question that we have to ask is, well, maybe she doesn't need a get because the marriage was not halakhically valid, right? If it's not halakhically valid, you don't need a get. Did you want to say something? Yeah, um, if you were to have an orthodox wedding, that orthodox clearly, I think, but you, like, you only have one Shona Shabbos kosher witness. Yep, no good, no good. You know, oh. Right, that, that's correct. Uh, and of course, in many cases, if there's one Shona Shabbos witness and the rabbi, the rabbi would count, would count as a witness. Okay? So that's the first thing we look at. Maybe the marriage isn't valid because you didn't have kosher witnesses. Now, what's interesting is, that some people have very, very high standards for what it takes to be a kosher witness, which could turn out to be a very interesting point. There are rabbis who say, <laughs> if you have an iPhone, you know, you're not a kosher witness. <laughs> now, the truth is, that would help, that would help a lot of agunot, I think, at least in the United States, because, um, you know, even most, I mean, I don't have one, but, but you know, many, many Orthodox rabbis certainly, uh, you know, have iPhones or smartphones or whatever it is. So that's an interesting point in which if you're ultra strict in halacha, that could actually turn out to be a leniency for agunos because you could make a person puzzle for witnesses. Um, okay, now, there's another way a marriage could be invalidated, though, which is very, very interesting and controversial. You know, let me, let me draw an analogy to, to Catholicism. You know, the Catholic Church... It does not, does not even allow divorce. There's no such thing as divorce for the Catholic marriage. But the Catholic Church does have something called annulment. So you can't get a marriage divorced, or you can't divorce in a marriage, but you can annul a marriage. Now, annulment means some type of situation where the marriage was created by false pretenses, and therefore it gets invalidated as if it never existed. This is a retroactive invalidation. Right? That's called annulment. A divorce is when you have a marriage and you want to stop it. This is annulment. The Hebrew term for that is lemafreya. It goes retroactively, retrospectively. Now, halacha has a very similar concept. And I'll give you the two Hebrew words. This is called kiddushin, marriage. Beta'us, or ta'ut in modern Hebrew. A marriage under mistake. Ta'us. My ta'us is a mistake. Now, the Mishnah already gives examples of this. The Mishnah says even, even things that aren't so serious. 
a man marries a woman and says, I am marrying you on the condition that I'm a Kohen. And she agreed because he said he was a Kohen. And then she discovers he's only a Levi. Now, for most of us, that wouldn't make a big difference, but that's called marriage under fraud. And she doesn't even need a get. You understand the idea? Because she only agreed to the marriage on that condition. So that's called toast. Now, toast in modern times could take a lot of forms. One example might be that the person misrepresents his financial status. The person represents that he has a big job with a big company, and it turns out he's unemployed. That might be Kedushin Batali. She doesn't need a get when she finds that out. Or something that's unfortunately, well, I'm not going to say very common, but moderately happens. Um, She discovers her husband is gay or even bisexual. Or she might discover her husband was born a woman. (laughs) Whatever, something like that. Right? So all of that is called kidushin bitos. And it can include other things as well. Uh, She discovers he's an alcoholic. She discovers he's a drug addict. She discovers... By the way, it can work the other way too, by the way. In other words, I'm not just saying, you know, she discovers all sorts of bad things about her husband. It could even apply... Husband discovers bad things about the wife. Ta'ot works in both directions, but usually we're, we're, we'll, we'll give the example of the man who did not reveal things to his wife. So uh, employment might be an issue, sexual orientation might be an issue, criminal record might be an issue, a past abuse, like you know, he was an abuser of, uh, in other relationships, that could be an issue, and the like. In all of these cases, the marriage is considered to be a marriage under fraud or mistake or misrepresentation. Tos. And the thing about Kedushin Batos is she doesn't even need a get because a get is needed only if there is a marriage that you want to terminate. See the difference? But when the marriage itself was under fraud, there's no marriage. If there's no marriage, even after 30 years, even if she finds out about it 30 years later, no marriage. The Catholic Church would use the word annulment for that, but we, know, we, we call it Kedushin Batos, which you can also call halachic annulment. That's the, same, that's the same idea. So that could help uh, women in a lot of cases, in which they could claim that the marriage uh, was under a fundamental mistake. Now, there's a very important point, however, to understand that this is not a panacea. This is not going to work in all cases. Because in order to be a ta'ut, it has to have been a pre-existing problem that was earlier than the marriage. It's not a problem that happened later. So, so for example, uh, if a person represented that he had a good job, and in fact he didn't have a job on the date of the marriage, that could be ta'ut. But let's assume he had the job and he lost it a week later. That's not toad. That's not a mistake at the time of the marriage. That's just a problem that happened later. Uh, abuse is another example. If he had a history of abusing women before the marriage that she didn't know about and now she finds out, that's toad. If he didn't have a past history but he just abuses her now, well, that's grounds for a get. She can ask for a get, but she can't annul the marriage 
Because annulment requires that it be a pre-existing condition. You see why? Because only if it's a pre-existing condition was there a mistake. Now, there were some rabbis, very left-wing rabbis, who wanted to make the psychological argument that any bad behavior that becomes manifest after the marriage must have its roots in some psychological dysfunction. Now, let's take abuse as an example. Yeah, he never hit a woman before his marriage. The first time he hit anybody was now. But the argument is, there must have been something in his personality that made him do it. And had she known of that defect in his personality, she never would have agreed. In other words, they can turn, that really turns everything into Kedushin Batos. And some rabbis wanted to do that. Some rabbis wanted to actually make almost every case of bad behavior an annulment. But most of the poskim say no. There has, to, there has to be an actual manifestation of that bad behavior. Before I jump. Yeah. Um, so actually this kind of does tie into psychological behaviors. But say like someone has like a, like a mental illness that impacts their behavior. Is it... Still something like long, like if it's something that they were diagnosed with and you didn't know about during the entire Yes, uh, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's loved out. I didn't mean only abuse. Uh, yeah. To there's any major psychiatric condition mm-hmm. that had you known about, you would not have been willing to go through with the marriage can be the basis for an annulment. Now, obviously... This is, good. this is where things are going to get tricky. There are differences between what you might call major and minor situations, meaning, gee, I didn't know, uh, the wife says, I didn't know my husband uh, doesn't drink coffee unless it's boiling hot. I would have known that. Well, you know, they're, they're, I mean, listen, I mean, if that's the case, then every single marriage is going to have an annulment, meaning, meaning by definition... Um, everybody, you know, he, the husband finds out things about his wife that says, I didn't do that, and uh, vice versa, and the wife finds things about the husband. So we're not, we're not suggesting that every little new bit of information that you get that's negative is going to be grounds for annulment. That would be crazy. But, you know, there are differences between major and, and, you know, major and small things, right? There are small, you know, men- mental illness can have a huge spectrum. But certainly if it's very, very extreme... Uh, and that's why in the dating process, I'm sure, you know, you probably get uh, instruction on this. Uh, if someone is taking psychiatric medication or has various conditions, at some point it is proper to talk about it uh, with the person you're going out with. Now, that doesn't mean before you meet them, because if you start to have, if you have to reveal every negative thing before you meet them, you'll never meet anybody because nobody wants to meet a problem. So obviously you're entitled to give them a chance to see your good points, to know you well. But so at some point though, when you're well into the process, it's important to be honest and open about whatever particular problems you have. So I you know, I wouldn't never I would never say to the first date or whatever it is, well, you know, people make up numbers uh, after the fourth date, after the fifth date, you know, something along those lines, because then they can evaluate the negatives in the context of the positives. Mm-hmm. That's very, very important because if people hear a negative and they don't even know you, you know, nobody wants to get involved in a problem. 
But if they see all the other good stuff, so you know, then they can live with it and they can work with it and, and the like. And again, I don't mean to, to, to imply that this is an obligation on the women. This is an obligation on the man and the woman. Each of them have the obligation uh, to be honest and to be open in order to ensure that the marriage is not entered into under fraud or misrepresentation or non-disclosure or, or whatever, whatever it is. Now, an interesting question on this, although this is not our topic for today per se, is, is there such a thing as a statute of limitations on psychiatric problems or abuse? I mean, let's assume that uh, a man or a woman, it makes no difference, had a breakdown uh, when they were in high school or maybe even younger, and uh, they've been off medication and, they've been, and everything has been fine for the past 15 years. Uh, are you obligated to dredge up something from the far distant past that is no longer a problem? In many cases, no, because the, the obligation of disclosure is to reveal problems that may be an ongoing source of stress in the marriage. If the problem is gone, then it's not. On the other hand, it's complicated, because if there is a heredity aspect, meaning to say if the nature of the condition is such that it may pass on to the children, that may be something that the other party is supposed to be able to know. Right? So it depends on how genetically linked, how much hereditary aspects are going to be involved. Now, when it comes to abuse, that's a little more d delicate as well. Let's say the person had one incident of abuse many, many years ago, or child molestation, pedophilia, right? things that are really, really bad. But it happened a long time ago, and there's been no repeats. These are very hard questions. Uh, do you have to come forward and reveal it, or do I say that it's dead? I mean, there are people in the abuse community, psychologists, that actually say there is no such thing as being cured of pedophilia or abusive behavior. You can control it. There are people who do control it, Baruch Hashem, but to say that it'll never happen again, they actually say it's impossible. I'm not sure if that's true. I mean, we believe in shuba. We do believe in, in change. But this will have a big impact on shiduchim. Meaning, do you have, because if there's a potential for something hap to happen in the future, you gotta talk about it. If it's gone and dead, and it's not gonna resuscitate, you don't have to talk about it. But in a lot of these cases, it's going to be difficult to really figure out if there'll be a future repercussion, yeah. So what would you say is like the least amount of time that's still considered long enough from like a traumatic experience for you to feel like, okay, like it might not happen? Yeah, well, well you know, I, I can't give a single answer, but I would say it would have to be something like five years, a minimum, five years, and but in some cases, maybe longer, you know. Uh, but you have to have, it's, it's similar to cancer, you know, the um, remission period, that's a successful remission, I believe, is five years. So we would apply the same type of, type of idea. Okay, all righty. Um, now then, of course, again, we can, we can broaden this. What if, you don't have the problem, say you or the boy doesn't have the problem, but a sibling has a problem, right? So that's another issue, meaning even if I have to talk about the things I'm going through, do I have to talk about the things that my brother and sister went through? What about a parent? Or a parent for that matter, right? So technically, that's not relevant to the marriage, right? I'm 
dating somebody, you know, so we're going to have a marriage. Uh, what happens to my brother and sister is not necessarily, or my parents, is not necessarily relevant. But once again, you do have the genetic link. And those are, you know, that's a major concern. Uh, if there is a significant risk that uh, children will have this disability or this challenge, so it's something you need to talk about. Again, I, I'm, I'm, not say, I'm not saying break off a relationship. All I'm saying is disclosure so people can talk about it and evaluate. Uh, it's, the truth of the matter is it's, uh, it's a self-defeating proposition, not to be honest. Because when you're not honest and the other side eventually finds out, then that tells the other side that you're not a person that they can trust. So that, that's not a good way to be in a marriage either. Uh, marriage does require the idea of trust, that I'm not going to lie to you, that I'll tell you the truth, you know, etc. And that's why it's better to be open. I mean, people lie about everything. People lie even about their age. Uh, people sometimes... Uh, say they, they're older than, well, usually, usually they say they're younger than they are, at least for women. Uh, boys might say they're older than they are, you know, whatever it is. And it's kind of ridiculous that anyone should lie over something like that, but uh, people do. Okay. Uh, but be it as it may, uh, this is called Kedushin B'ta'utz, uh, and that's a very important aspect in which a woman may not need a get. But, as I say, the big, big limitation on Kedushin B'ta'utz is it must be a pre-existing problem. It can't be something that developed during the marriage, which means the fact that he became abusive or became a drug addict or did other things during the marriage is not grounds for annulment. Now, there's another limitation, though, that makes this very, very difficult, and that is once a person becomes aware of the problem and continues to cohabit, in the expectation or the hope that things will get better, they may have waived their right to get an annulment. So this really creates a very vicious catch-22. Let's imagine, well, okay, let's take the following. Let's imagine that a woman gets married and she discovers after the marriage that her husband is gay. Now, if the very day that she discovers that she's gay, that he's gay, she goes to abate it and seeks an annulment, she may very well get it. She may very well get that divorce. I'm sorry, not, not divorce, get the annulment, not needing again. But let's say she decides, well, let's try to work it out. Maybe I can manage it. Maybe I can go with it. And they continue to live together. Although in the case of a a solely gay person that's a, they really I mean I mean having sexual intercourse maybe that wouldn't be possible with gay but they bisexual or something like that so at some point if she continues to live with the guy knowing the problem it's as if she's mochelet as if she waves her right so that's going to create a big problem because a lot of times when women have these annulment claims it's after they tried to work it out over a prolonged period of time. And maybe they were encouraged to do that. So those are going to be the two problems. So, so the bottom line I want to tell you is that it's pretty hard for a woman to avoid a get by seeking annulment because she's going to face one of two very big problems. Either it's a post-marital condition 
or she became aware of it and continued to live with him for a while, in which case she lost that right. And I can tell you generally, uh, at least in Israel, the Bastins in Israel, when I was just told that I, I actually had, uh, uh, I was involved in the case in which the person was seeking a rabbinic annulment based on kiddushin bitaus, marriage under mistake. And the uh, rabbinic lawyer, they have rabbinic lawyers in Israel, said the Bastins never do that. They just don't do it. They don't want to do it. They always want to get. Uh, they don't want to use a nomen to avoid a get. So even though halacha allows it, they don't want to use it because, again, because if, you, because if you're making a wrong psaac, you're permitting adultery, right? So they're very, very strict that they always want a, a get for these things. Okay, yeah. It's a bit technical, but what if you have awareness of an issue pre-marriage, but then it magnifies in marriage? Is that considered being aware of the issue, or...? Like a different ground. I, I think that would be a different ground because you you weren't aware of how bad it was, and that, that I think could be a possible argument. Yeah, I was aware that there was something. I had no idea that it was that bad. Yeah, I, I think that uh, could still be a ground for a moment. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, is it ever possible for the like for someone to go to the meeting and they say? before you guys try and like divorce because of a pre-existing condition, why don't you try to work on it? Yep. Yes, and, and, that, that's, and that's, the, that's the catch-22 yeah. because that paints the woman into a corner that by trying to work on it, she may lose the right to get the annulment later. I mean, I mean that's exactly the problem, you see, mm -hmm. because she's then living with the guy knowing there's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the they didn't take that into consideration? Oh, oh, that they themselves put... Yeah, that they recommended... Uh, that that might be. They, 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 yeah, they might say, since she only did it because we told her to do it, so yeah. she did not mean to relinquish for us. That, that would be a possibility, yeah. But as I say, practically in Eretz Yisrael, uh, the Bastins don't even uh, give you, you know, don't, don't even use an element at all. They will not allow it at all. They just don't do it. Um, okay. Um, all right, so, so again, just to show, tell you where I'm going. So I gave you two different ways a woman could avoid the need for a get, and therefore not be an aguna. The first is if the ceremony was not a kosher ceremony. You didn't have kosher witnesses, or it's a civil marriage. And the second is kedushin betos, which is rabbinical annulment. So that avoids an aguna problem very simply because the marriage is not valid. You don't need a get. If you don't need a get, she's not an aguna. Okay. But most cases, uh, if there was an orthodox ceremony, the woman is married, she needs a get. So what can we do? So last week we discussed, I'm going to go over it quickly, we discussed the process of how a woman can get a get from an unwilling husband. Uh, and this is true both in, uh, in Eretz Israel and every other country that has a base in. That is, she files a motion or a claim in base in, stating that she wants a get. The base in will issue a summons, that's called hazmana, to the husband to show up and discuss the matter. And the husband can come or not come, but let's assume he comes. And 
the Beistin can then either issue a psak that he must give her a get, or issue a psak that he need not give her a get. Now, if he wants to give her a get, he could, but now, again, this may be review, I don't remember. What are the grounds? Meaning, meaning a woman files a claim. I want a get for my husband. The Beistin has to decide must he give her a get or he need not give her a get? So how does the basin decide that? So let me remind you quickly that there is a big, big machlokas between Rambam and Rabbeinu Tam. Rambam is Rav Moshe ben Maimon lived in the 1100s. And Rabbeinu Tam, his real name is Rabbi Yaakov ben Meir. He's called Tam, the perfect one, because Yaakov Avinu is called Tam. So Rabbeinu Tam. And Yaakov ben Meir is Rashi's grandson. But Rabbeinu Tam was very great in his own right. According to Rambam, all a woman has to say to a basement all she has to say is, I don't want to live with the guy anymore. I don't want to be married. According to Rambam, as soon as she declares to the Basin, I don't want to be married to the guy, the Basin will issue an order to the man, you must give your wife a get. So according to the Rambam, it's extremely easy for a woman to obtain a decision of a basin that the husband must give a get. She doesn't have to prove anything. She just has to say, I don't want to be married anymore to him. That's Rambam. Rabbeinu Tam, unfortunately perhaps for notes, has a stricter view. According to Rabbeinu Tam, the husband will not be ordered to give a get to his wife, even if she says she doesn't want to stay in the marriage, unless she can show, she can prove that he's guilty of various bad things, such as abuse. Now, this is not a nomen abuse. This, this is things that happen during the marriage. Abuse, non-support, like he didn't support her, abandonment, adultery, in other words, he has affairs, cruelty. In other words, she can't just get her get by saying, I don't want to be married. She has to like, prove that he's guilty of something. Now, that could be a little difficult because, you know, it's difficult to prove things. A lot of times it'll be he says, she says. She says he did all these things. He says not. Unfortunately, it's not unknown in even religious communities for people to look very righteous and upstanding in the outside world and inside the home. Not so good. Right? It happens. 
So he might have 50 people that could testify. But it's Sadiq he is, you know, uh, he's, the, he's the first one who comes to Shul or whatever it is. And how many people are going to know what goes on behind closed doors? It's not so simple. So you do have to know this big machlokas, that according to Rambam, the basin will order the man to give a get if all she says, says is, I don't want to be married anymore. It's very easy. According to Rabbeinu Tam, she has more of an uphill climb because she has to convince the Bastin that there's been some bad behavior. Again, bad behavior can mean a lot of things. Abuse, non-support, refusal to consummate the marriage, uh, mistreatment of children, you know, anything you could imagine, but there has to be something there. It can't just be her statement, I don't want to be married. Now, we have this machlokas. So what is the halacha? What is the halacha? In other words, what will the Beistin do today? Will the Beistin follow the Rambam? Or will the Beistin follow Rabbeinu Tal? Right? We need to know this. So here, I have to tell you that the Beistins do not follow the Rambam. Basin's father, Rabbeinu Tam. So uh, a woman may have some difficulty, although not all. I mean, you know, sometimes it's very clear the guy's abusive. But a woman may have some difficulty in getting upset that he has to give her again. Okay. Now, so far, Israel and the uh, U.S. are the same. A woman goes to Basin and seeks upset that he has to give her again. If she loses on that grounds, then she's kind of out of luck at that point. But let's assume she wins. She has her psak. That's great. She has a psak that the husband must give her again. But what does she do with that? The psak does not divorce her yet. She's not divorced. She just has a psak that he has to give her again. So here, at this point, there's going to be a big, big difference between the United States or any other, any other country and Israel. In Israel, okay, this is important, once she has a psak, there's a lot she can do to put pressure on her husband. And the reason is because in Israel, the decision of a basin about a get is treated as part of the judicial system of the state of Israel. And because it is a judgment of the court system of the state of Israel, it can be enforced as a judgment by the laws of the Knesset, the secular laws of the Knesset. So, <clears throat> if a man refuses to give a get to his wife after a based in ordered him to give a get, the man can be fined, for example, a hundred shekel a day or a thousand shekel a day for every day he doesn't give a get. So he'll want to give a get. Or he can have his passport taken away from him. Or he can have his, if he has a car, his driver's license suspended. Or he could go to jail and remain in jail 
until he gives again to his wife. Again, depending which punishment, you know, a judge can, can do all of these different punishments. So in Medinat Yisrael, a woman that's an aguna, well, again, you understand, until she gets her psak, none of this happens. If she doesn't get a psak that he has to give a get, then she can't do any of this. But once she gets a psak, she has all of these alternatives afterwards. Now, even in Israel, those alternatives don't always work. There are people who would rather go to jail than give their wife again. So this is not 100% effective either, but it does create significant pressure. Now, in the U.S., New York, the woman got a psak from a basin in Brooklyn that husband has to give a gift. Okay, what does she do with that? Now here's the problem. In America, or any other country besides Israel, a basin is not a court. A basin that decides something, she can't get her husband fined or get her husband arrested. Right? The New York City Police Department is not going to arrest a man because he did not obey the decision of a basin. So the problem in Chutzlaretz is the process for getting a psak based is going to be the same. It's the same in Israel and the same in Chutzlaretz. But the problem is, once the woman has the psak, she can do all sorts of enforcement in Eretz Yisrael under the laws of the Knesset, but it wouldn't be enforceable under the laws of the United States. So, question is this, if a woman is if a woman does obtain a psak basin that husband must give again, what if the husband refuses to listen to the basin? What does the basin then do? So there are two things the basin can do. One is legal, one is illegal. When I say legal, I mean I don't mean halakhically legal, meaning secularly legal or illegal. The legal thing the basin can do is put the guy in cherem. Now, what is cherem? Cherem is excommunication. Meaning the basin can declare that because the husband has refused to listen to the basin, we hereby declare that he's excommunicated. By that, now what would that mean? That would mean uh, he's not allowed to walk into a shul. People are not supposed to talk to him. They have to stay four amos away from him. That's like eight cubits. They shun him. Uh, they, if he has a business, uh, they don't patronize his business and the like. And that's called cherem, excommunication. And the theory is that at some point he'll break down and give a get because he doesn't want to be in cherem. He's in cherem until he gives a get. They can also do another thing either with cherem or without cherem, they can shame him and humiliate him. So you may have seen this sometimes. They'll put his picture on a telephone, you know, on, on a poster that they'll hang up in a lot of places that will say something like, uh, whatever it is, uh, Avraham Gordon is a bum who refuses to give a get to his wife 
and the Basin hereby declares that he is a Russia, an evil person, and uh, Jewish people should have nothing to do with him. And they post it up in a million places, and the idea is that the shame and the embarrassment will cause him to give again. Now sometimes that's shaming without a cherem, and sometimes it's shaming with a cherem, meaning you can do it, the basin can do it in different ways, and in fact they may start with just shaming him, and then they'll escalate it to cherem. That would also mean that even if his child is having a bar mitzvah in shul, he will not be allowed to come. And if he comes, they'll kick him out or, or whatever it is. So that is legal. Legally, they can do that. A religious community has the right to excommunicate a member. But let me just point out why cherem is not a perfect solution. First of all, cherem works really when you have what is called a homogenous community. So let's take Chabad as an example. So let's say you have a Lubavitcher chassid who lives in Crown Heights who doesn't, doesn't give a get to his wife. So the basin in Crown Heights uh, uh, shames him and says no Jew should have anything to do with him. Now, if he is a Chabad person and he wants to live in Crown Heights, that Chayim is going to be very powerful. No one's going to talk to him. He's not going to count for a minute. He can't go to show. So he'll give a get. But a lot of times, maybe the person is no longer religious. He doesn't, he doesn't care what uh, the, that other Lubavitchers and Crownites don't talk to him. He doesn't care. Or even if he's religious, maybe he'll stop being Chabad. He'll go to some other place. In other words, when you have a homogenous, unified community, then a cherem is extremely powerful. But in most Orthodox communities, even within the Orthodox community, you know, hey, he's kicked out of this shul, he'll go to the shul down the street. People don't pay attention, you know, this cherem and that cherem. In fact, even a lot of rabbis, they don't want to get involved. I mean, I, I, I've had cases where a husband, you know, a man, a man, a man wants to join a shul. Say, sure, you want to join the shul, sure. And then we get word you know this man has disobeyed the decision of a Bastin a year ago not to give a get to his wife and therefore he's not allowed to become a member of a show? Well, a lot of rabbis' attitude is, I don't know the whole story, I'm not going to pass judgment, meaning I'm not going to get involved. So it's pretty easy, unless you're in like Chabad or Satmir or something, it's pretty easy to evade a cherem. Just you know, move to a different city, move down the block, and even if rabbis are going to hear about it, rabbis often don't want to get involved in, in this type of story. So cherem can work. Cherem and shaming, I mean, you can, you're talking about them both, can work. But they're not, uh, they're not perfect solutions. I mean, in Eretz Israel, it's much better. You take away his driver's license, you can fine him, you can put him in jail, take away his passport. Those are pressures that are much more real sometimes than the excommunication. Did you want to say something? No, I just, I mean, yes, I just wanted to ask, like, for the Aguna, how does that help her if he the community? Like, what is the base that No, that's what I'm saying. In other words, we have a problem. At that point, if it's not going to work, she's in trouble. That's what, that's what we're saying. Uh, and so I'll get to the other things we'll get to. Now, the, the non-legal thing that Bastons can do is they can hire mafia. And I, I mentioned this mm -hmm. last week. And that is, 
They can get people to beat the husband with a lead pipe or with a whip, and they'll do it privately, uh, in which uh, you either give a get or we're going to break your arm, or worse. And halacha allows that. Now, please be sure you know this. Halacha would not allow it before the based in Paskins. So if the woman did it on her own, that would not be permitted. But once the based in Paskins, either the based could get mafia or she could get mafia, even on her own. Okay, this is Beferish, this is explicit in the Mishnah. So that can be pretty effective, right? You, you, you put somebody, set some big uh, Italian enforcer, uh, puts a gun to the guy's head and says, uh, what's the Godfather line? I'll make you an offer you can't refuse uh, type of thing. And that could work. But I do want to say that although halachically that's permitted, it is illegal. And uh, a person who does that could go to jail. And I, I think I mentioned to you that there were rabbis who were doing this and they were in jail. They went to jail because of it. So it can be done, but most basins don't want to do it because, I mean, well, number one, they might go to jail. And number two, it's a chilol Hashem. When, when if general society hears that we use violence and intimidation, so people are going to think very badly of the, of the Jewish people. Okay. Is it allowed in Eretz Yisrael? Uh, it is actually not allowed in Eretz In other words, but in Eretz Yisrael, you see, he could go to jail. So the maximum thing that's allowed in Israel is imprisonment. They do not allow whipping or shooting or breaking an arm. Now, some people have proposed that we ought to do that. But uh, j- jail time is the maximum. That, that can be forever. In other words, the man will be put in jail until he gives a get. Okay, so, yeah. Okay. So, you understand, what I'm trying to paint is maybe a little bit of a bleak picture. Uh, the aguna is stuck, meaning, let, let's take a woman in New York. She has a psak based in, husband must give a get. Baruch Hashem, that's step one. Uh, the husband's picture is all over the place, and he's embarrassed. Step two. And the husband has been excommunicated, but he moved to Muncie. So all in all, she's still without her gets. Right? Big problem. So because of this, some people have advocated that you got to go backwards. I mean, it may not help a woman already married, but they advocate that when people get married, they should sign a prenuptial agreement. Now, a prenuptial agreement just means, call it prenup, uh, that's how you abbreviate it. It just means uh, an agreement that is signed before the marriage, either on the day of the marriage or even before that. And there are different types of prenuptial agreements. Of course, keep in mind the following. Uh, A prenup is not a solution for a woman who didn't have a prenup, meaning once she's an aguna without a prenup, she might be in a very bad place. But if you had a prenup, this could avoid the problem. So the question is, what type of prenup would be signed that would deal with this issue. So there are a number of different ones, but the most common one in the United States, in fact, 99.8 of, of any prenup in the United States, will, uh, orthodox prenup in the US will be this one, is a prenup prepared 
by the Ars Rabbinical Council of America, and uh, that's abbreviated RCA. So you'll hear a lot. You can even Google the words RCA prenup, and you can get a, a copy of the RCA prenup. And the RCA prenup uh, is supposed to be signed before the marriage, either on the day of the marriage or, you know, it could be before that as well. Uh, and if you didn't do it, it could even be signed as a postnup. There's little modifications, uh, but it's mainly meant to be a prenup. And there are three, three parts to the RCA prenup. Part A, Part B, Part C. And the parts are independent. So theoretically, you could do Part A without B, or B without A, or C without B, C without A, etc. But uh, optimally, they advocate all three. Part A says the following. And remember, this is signed when they're shalom bias, obviously. This is signed when they're getting along. It's very difficult. Once your husband wants to make you an aguna, you're not going to get him to sign a prenup at that, <laughs> at that point. So this has to be when they're still talking to each other and they're friendly. So Part A says the following. We hereby agree that if we have marital disagreements, we will go to a basin, and they, they, they designate the basin in the document. Basin of America, basin of Crown Heights, uh, basin in Muncie. And that's very helpful because that states ahead of time what the basin will be. And we agree to obey their decision. Now that's all Part A says. All Part A says is, we hereby agree that in the event of a marital disagreement over divorce, we hereby agree to go to a basin and obey their decision. That's all Part A is, very simple. What does Part A accomplish legally? It's a contract. It's a contract, that's correct. And it's a particular type of contract. It is called an arbitration agreement. We agree to give our dispute over to a body, not a court, but a body to adjudicate. Now, here is the thing about an arbitration agreement. Once you agree to submit a dispute to arbitration, if you fail to carry out the order of the arbitrator, the other side can go to secular court and have you order to do that. So, let's imagine the woman goes to Baston and she gets a Psak Baston that the husband has to give her again. Had there not been a prenup, the only thing that the basin could do is put the guy in cherem or embarrass him or whatever it is. There's nothing else the woman can do. But if they signed a prenup where she signed, she and he signed a contract to obey that decision, she can now go to, can now go to a secular judge and say, he is in violation of the arbitration agreement. And the judge can then order him to comply with the arbitration or pay fines, like $100 a day, 
or even go to jail. In other words, it becomes like Eretz Yisrael by virtue of the arbitration agreement. So this can help a, per, a woman enormously because this will, in, will enable her to take the psak based in, look at it like an arbitration agreement, and she can go to court and have him directed. And if he doesn't listen to the court judgment, so again, nobody's going to be punished because they don't listen to a based in. But if it's an arbitration agreement, the court will order him to keep that arbitration agreement. And if he doesn't listen to the court, he can be fined and he can go to jail and everything else. So this could help uh, very, very well. So part A itself, even part A alone, can help a lot. But you understand that part A works only if the woman gets a psak based in. Because then there's a based in decision that he has to give again. But then there's a part B. Part B is more controversial. Part B will help a woman even if she didn't go to based in at all. And that's why some people question, why are we helping women who don't go to based in? Part B says, I, the husband, agree that for every day we are not living under the same roof. I will provide my wife with support for food, clothing, and shelter and it actually will give some price, depending on, in other words, it's, it's a whole calculation based on cost of living, right? So for example, cost of living in New York City is much higher than cost of living in Minnesota or South Dakota. So in part B, you would actually put in a dollar amount. It might be, I will give my wife $150 a day or $600 a day or 1000 a week. You, you could say it any way you want, but essentially the husband is obligating himself to support his wife in a dollar amount until he gives her a get. So the theory would be Gee, if every day I don't give my wife again, I owe her $150, I'm going to try to give her again as soon as I can. Now, it's complicated because there has to be a triggering mechanism, meaning the way it works is the following. When husband and wife are not living under the same roof, meaning they're separated, she sends a notice to the husband demanding that he give a get within 30 days. If he gives the get within 30 days, there's no penalty there. If he doesn't give the get within 30 days, then starting on day 31, he will have to pay her that cost of living amount every single day that he doesn't give a get to be terminated only upon the giving of a get. You see how it works? This is legal? 
this is legal because this is simply a legal contract to pay uh, support. This becomes a legal contract. So if he doesn't come up with the money, she could sue him for that money. But again, the purpose is not so much to give her money. The goal is the other way around. The goal is the fact that he knows he could be liable for this money would cause him to give the get sooner rather than later. Now, do you see the difference again between Part A and Part B? Part A is simply the agreement to go to a basin and obey whatever they decide. That makes it an arbitration agreement. Part B is a support obligation that will kick in after 30 days, computed on a daily basis, that will be eliminated only upon the giving of a get, or actually, you might argue this, so she could blackmail him. Let's say he wants to give a get, she refuses to receive it because she wants the money to accumulate. So the agreement writes that as soon as he goes to Baston and deposits a get, has a get written, his obligation stops. Now she can't blackmail him by not receiving the get. Okay, do you get it? Part A, part B. The amount in part B, uh, you know, it's not fixed. It's, it's what they agree upon. It makes sense, and that will depend on the part of the country they're in, you know, and the like. Like, what, what would the average support needs be for uh, a woman living in Manhattan or living in Brooklyn or living in Muncie or living in Detroit or living in Milwaukee? And they would, you know, build it in that particular way. And there's even an escalator clause for inflation, meaning this amount will increase every year if he, if he delays giving a get for a year, etc., it'll be a cost of living increase of you know, 1% or 2% or 3% or, or whatever it is. Okay? Everyone understands part A, part B. Now, those are the two parts that deal with Aguna. Part C is not really about Aguna. Uh, it simply raises the following question. Even if a get is given, I say a get is given, there's no Aguna problem. But there are going to be issues about how you, how you divide property, etc. And uh, halacha has certain rules and secular law has certain rules. And the parties are asked to choose, do they want the basedin to follow halacha or do they want the basedin to follow secular law? Now you may say, isn't that strange? Isn't the basin supposed to follow halacha? What do you mean you, you tell the basin to follow secular law? Well, it is a little unusual, but when it comes to money matters, property matters, uh, the parties are allowed to ask the basin to follow secular law. So that's simply a question. Do you want us to follow the Torah's laws of property or the secular laws of property? That's a check that you know, they decide which, which way they want to go on that particular one. But in terms of get and aguna, the only things that are relevant is part A and part B of the RCA prenuptial agreement. So the thinking of the RCA, Rabbinical Council of America, was that if you combine the one-two punch, and you can have A without B and B without A. They're like totally independent things. Uh, that puts the husband in a position where he would much rather give a get than not give a get because he wants to get out of the financial penalties of not giving a, a get. Now, 
is this what, how many people use this? I mean, uh, is this a standard? Now, the RCA actually hoped that every Orthodox wedding would have this prenuptial agreement. They actually wanted everybody to do it. Uh, in truth, most Orthodox weddings do not have this prenup. Uh, among Hasidim, no, no Hasidim do it. Among uh, the right-wing yeshiva world, they don't do it. So really, this is only done, and even then, uh, less than 50%, but this is done in the modern Orthodox uh, world. So you'll often find in a modern Orthodox wedding, the rabbi will insist. The rabbi will say, I'm not going to conduct this wedding unless you sign the RCA prenup. Or sometimes it's not the rabbi that insists. Sometimes it's usually the either the bride or the bride's parents. Actually, the bride's parents more than the bride. The kala, mm-hmm. you know, is uh, romantically smitten, so she's not thinking about what's going to be if we get divorced. But the parents are a bit more, more concerned. Now, if you ask me, well, is there anything wrong with it? Meaning to say, if I'm a Hasidic woman or I'm a yeshiva person, what, I mean, is there something wrong with this agreement? So I'll tell you the truth. There's not, there actually is nothing wrong with this agreement. Meaning, halakhically, this can be signed by anybody. Even if you're a Hasid, you can sign it. In other words, it's not that there's a problem with the agreement. Uh, but all I can tell you is, factually, among Hasidim and, yesh- and right-wing yeshiva, it just is not done because they don't like innovations, they don't want to change anything, etc. Although I will tell you a very tragic story. I remember years and years ago, a uh, boy who grew up in my congregation in Silver Spring, and he became very, very religious. Uh, he got married, and his wife's parents insisted that um, they signed this prenuptial agreement. And I remember to this day, as I said, I told them, you know, listen, there's no problem. You know, you're not going to get divorced. Why don't you sign it? Well, who cares? You know, just make him happy. So he was vociferous. He said, I will not sign an agreement about giving a get to my wife the day I'm getting married. I will not. Divorce is so impossible. It is so out of range. I am not going to do anything that implies there'll be a get. And he really was so saying, this is forever. Well, fast forward 15 years, uh, and he is divorced from his wife. Uh, now, she's not in Aguna because he, you know, he gave a get. I mean, there wasn't a problem. But the notion that he was so 100% sure that there's no conceivable way there could ever be a divorce, uh, Lemaisa, you know, you, you never know. And the truth is, you know, the argument that I love my wife too much to sign a document about giving a get is really the opposite. If you really love and care, so you'll do something that'll make her feel secure. I mean, you see the argument. The argument that uh, I'm not going to enter into a prenup because I love my wife too much to talk about giving a get. Well, okay. But the whole point is that she shouldn't be in Aguna if the worst thing happens. Okay. So that's what you need to know about the RCA prenup. Um, If any of you... uh, are either pressured or wondering whether you should sign it or whether you can sign it or whether you should sign it. Uh, so all I can tell you is halakhically it's okay to sign, uh, but Lamaisa, depending on who your shidduch is, uh, you may have a lot of resistance uh, from particular sides that they don't do this type of thing. 
So. Well, when it comes to a man, he can just give a get at any point in time under any. Oh yeah, a man, a man can get whatever he wants, but but she has to be willing to accept it. Meaning meaning, he can't divorce her against her will. So how does that work? No, that means that, uh, that if they both decide they want to get divorced, they can go to a base thing and do what they get. But if a woman denies a man... Uh, so he, then he becomes an ugly as well. He, he becomes, he, she could strand him just like she could... So do the same laws apply? Or well, well, a man has a little... We talked, we talked last week that um, the, the problem of the man uh, whose wife refuses to accept a get is uh, only a rabbinic problem of Rabbeinu Gershom. And if a hundred rabbis gave him a hatcher, he could get married without doing it. So he has an avenue that she does not have. So initially, both of them could be hamstrung by the other, but uh, she's in a worse situation than, than he is. He has a hatcher mayor rabbanim on the cherem of Rabbeinu Gershom. Yeah, I know this is uh, a bit uh, dense, and um, uh, if you don't have a legal background, maybe it's a little harder to understand. I'm kind of like morphing into my prior life as a law professor, uh, but uh, I hope it makes general sense of what the prenup is trying to, trying to accomplish. Okay. Can I ask a question? Yeah. So prenup is actually the benefit for the bride for, for the wife. It's not like... Yes, you're 100% you're, you're correct. The prenup was drafted to benefit women, okay. so women will not be stranded. That, that, that's 100% correct. Um, uh, and it, it does it in two ways, by making a basin decision and arbitration award and by imposing a financial obligation on the husband for every day he doesn't give a get, but he's given a 30-day grace period. In other words, she demands a get, uh, he has 30 days to do it. If he does it within 30 days, no penalties. After 30 days, there'll be $150 or whatever, whatever it is uh, per, per day that he doesn't give a get, yeah. Do you think there's anything to the idea that signing a prenup is in any way like foreshadowing divorce or causing some issues? Some people say that, but, 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 but let me remind you of this. Let's consider the one document that every Jewish marriage has to have. And that, of course, is the kasuba. Now, the kasuba itself says, upon death or divorce, right, we talked about this, uh, I will pay a certain amount of money. So to say, oh, we don't talk about divorce or, uh, you know, at a marriage, yeah. the Ksuba itself talks about divorce, right? Yeah. So uh, I don't think uh, you have to be worried about this. Now, the RCA likes to, they want to publicize it. They actually want the prenup to be read publicly like the Ksuba. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can do it privately. You, and you don't have to do it at the wedding. You can do it a week before the wedding. You can do it the week after the wedding. Then it's called the post-nup, so it's modified a tiny bit. Uh, so it doesn't have to be a big, big ceremony. Uh, maybe it shouldn't be a big ceremony, to, you know, just to show it off. But um, I don't really see a big problem with it. Uh, but again, I'm, I am simplifying a little bit. There will be rabbis that will see some problems, and we don't really have time to go over the technicalities. But by and large, I think it's, it's an okay thing. But as I say, in the Hasidic world, it is not done at all. And uh, in the yeshiva, right-wing yeshiva world, it's not done at all. So it's either Dati Liumi in Israel or, or modern Orthodox in America. And even then, and even then, I think it's less than 50%. I don't have the statistics, but I think uh, less than 50% of the modern Orthodox marriages have a prenup. But the RCA claims 
that it's been very effective, and they say that uh, couples with prenups that, God forbid, get divorced, which, you know, we hope that's not going to happen, uh, the get tends to be pretty smooth because of the existence of the prenup. So they claim that it's effective. Of course, you understand one thing, though. You understand that you can't really prove the effectiveness of a prenup because you don't really know how cooperative the person would have been without the prenup. I mean, what's your control group? In fact, one might even argue that people who sign prenups tend to be more cooperative personalities. <laughs> and if they're more cooperative personalities, they would give again anyway. Right? So you, you can't really prove uh, anything. Uh, so a claim that the prenup is you know, effective in giving gitten, you can't really prove that because that, that's assuming without the prenup they wouldn't have given the get. Well, maybe they would have done it anyway. So you, don't, you just don't know. But okay. Now, let me mention uh, two other very interesting things. Uh, some of you are maybe from the anyone from New York? You're from New York itself? Um, okay. Um, New York State, of course, has the largest, well, really from New York City, but as a result, the whole New York State has the largest number of Orthodox Jews, I guess, in the United States. I think so. I think it's larger than California. Yeah. Uh, and uh, as a result, Orthodox Jews in New York have political clout that they may not have in any other state. And as a result, there are two laws that New York State passed to help women that are agunas. And colloquially, these are called get laws, the New York get laws. The word get does not appear in the law, but they're called the get laws. And there's New York get law number one, which was passed in 1983. And New York Get Law Number Two, that was passed in 1996, and these are remarkable, because uh, New York is the only state in the United States that actually has secular laws to protect women who are ragunas. I know that other states, Jew Jewish activists in other states, have tried to pass laws like this, and they have not been able to do so. Um, so let me first talk about New York Get Law Number One, which goes back to 1983. New York Get Law Number One. Now again, it doesn't mention get, so it's 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 written in a very legalistic way. So when you first hear it, you know it's not going to click, but it's kind of an ingenious law. It basically says that in the state of New York, whenever somebody wants to get a divorce they must file a statement under oath that they have removed any impediment to the remarriage of the other party. And if they fail to file an affidavit, that means a statement under oath, that they have removed a barrier to the marriage of the other party, they will not be granted a civil divorce. So now let's translate that into simple English. If I am a man in the state of New York and I want a divorce, I want a civil divorce, I will not be able to get a civil divorce until I give my wife a get. Because if I haven't given my wife a get, I am maintaining a barrier to her remarriage. Now, so that basically means that New York has a law that you cannot 
it's not you, it's really the husband. A husband cannot get a divorce unless they file a statement that they gave their wife again. Now, please note that this is a little tricky. I didn't say a husband can't get a divorce until he gives his wife again. I said a husband cannot get a divorce until he files a statement that he gave his wife again. Okay, what's going to stop him from lying? Let him, let him file a statement he gave again, and he's lying. The answer is, you might say this isn't the greatest thing, that making a statement to a court under oath that's untrue is a crime, perjury. For commission of perjury, you can go to jail. So it's interesting, for reasons, again, a little technical, I don't know if we can go into right now. The, the law does not say he can't get a divorce unless he actually gives again. The court says he can't get a divorce until he files a statement under oath that he gave again, or he removed the barriers to his wife's remarriage. And the idea would be he's not going to lie because he could go to jail if he's lying. So, assuming that the husband wants to get a divorce for civil reasons, he wants to marry somebody else, he better give a get, otherwise he will not get a divorce. Right? That's New York get law number one. No civil divorce unless you remove the barrier to the remarriage of the other party. Okay. Now, New York Get Law number two is later, 1996, 13 years later. And this is discussing the law, the secular law. Again, I really apologize for so much uh, law talking today. The secular law of equitable distribution. Now, equitable distribution is simply the way a court divides up property when a couple gets divorced. It does so in a fair way, equitable. And it looks at all sorts of different things. It looks at comparative education. If one spouse had less education and less earning ability, so they'll get more property, etc. Usually it's the husband that's in a superior position, but sometimes it's the other way around. The wife might be a neurologist and the husband might be a plumber, you know, whatever it would be. So the court looks at a whole cholent of things, education, earning ability, uh, a potpourri, a cholent of things that the judge looks at. So what they added in 1996 was they added another ingredient to the cholent that in considering property division, the judge may consider whether or not you are maintaining a barrier to the remarriage of the other party. So what that means is the following. In the state of New York, a judge may tell the husband, if you give your wife a get, you will get 50% of the house. If you don't give your wife a get, you will get nothing of the house. She will get 100%. And 
In other words, the court may use the maintenance of the barrier to remarriage as a factor in property division. Which means the judge is not ordering him to give a get. A judge can't order him to give a get. The judge is not a rabbi. But the judge is saying, you can do what you want. You can give a get or not give a get. That's your business. But all I'm telling you is, if you don't give a get, I will use that as a negative factor in dividing up property, and I will give her all the property. If you give her a get, you'll get, half, you'll get 50% of the property. In other words, maintenance of barrier to remarriage is a factor in property division equitable distribution. So these are two laws in the state of New York. Of course, one, law number one is husband will not get a civil divorce unless he gives her a get. Number two, even if she is seeking the divorce, not the husband, but the court may hit the husband with his not giving a get as a basis of property division. And these are two laws, only in the state of New York, that put pressure on a husband to give a get. Now, as I say, there have been a number of other states in the United States that have tried to uh, pass laws like this. But it hasn't. I remember, I remember in Maryland, uh, meetings that rabbis were calling for a similar law. Uh, it has not uh, been passed. But I will tell you that in England, South Africa, uh, and Canada, they did pass New York Get Law Number One. They did pass that law that a husband cannot get a civil divorce unless he removes a, unless he files a statement that he removed a barrier to remarriage. So the New York Get Law has not had any further expansion in the United States. But Canada, South Africa, and uh, Great Britain have modeled their laws on the New York Law. The actually, if you're since if you if you are conversant with Chabad history, I should tell you that the drafter of the New York Law was famous Washington from attorney uh, Nathan Lewin. Uh, and if you have a good memory or you like Chabad history, uh, you may have heard the name Nathan Lewin. Nathan Lewin, uh, number one, has been the attorney for Chabad in a lot of menorah cases throughout the United States. You know, Chabad is always in court because uh, they want menorahs in public places and people bring, usually Jews say, you can't do that. Uh, separation of church and state, you can't have religious symbols in public places. So Chabad you know, goes to court uh, over this. And uh, Nathan Lewin uh, represents Chabad and usually he wins. Usually they win their cases. Uh, but in addition, uh, he represented Chabad in the famous litigation about the Rebbe's library. Remember that? Uh, is that in Tavis? Well, it's in Tavis, right? There's a, there's, what's the... Hey Tavis? Yeah, Hey Tavis. Big, big celebration where uh, the Friedrich Rebbe had a you know, huge, huge library and uh, one of his grandchildren claimed to be the, the, the heir of the library, the origin of the library, and took books out. And uh, the problem was that the Rebbe maintained that it belonged to the, the Hasidim, it belonged to everybody, it was not private property, and unfortunately it had to go to secular court, even the Rebbetson to testify. The Rebbetson didn't have to uh, testify, but the Rebbetson testified in, in court itself. 
Uh, and uh, Nathan Lewin was the attorney, attorney for, for Chabad that, that won that case. So he did a lot of good stuff, and one of the good things he did was he was the writer, he was the drafter of New York Get Law, uh, number, number one, right? So he actually wrote the law to protect Agunas as well. Okay, uh, so that's about it. I think more than you need to know or want to know about prenups and, and the like, but at least you have Thank a sense you. of what it's all about and uh, the Aguna crisis. Thank you. So anyway, have a happy first.